Uh, the scripture reading is from John 4, uh, verses 1 onwards. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came, draw, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to be worshipped. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me, that all, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word, Lord. Thank you that you call us to, uh, to listen uh, to your word uh, that you speak out through um, um, through the ministry today, Lord, uh, we pray that you're, through your Holy Spirit, you would, um, Lord, give us um, ears to hear, Lord, and a heart to comprehend your word. Um, your spirit would illumine, uh, Lord, the, the words of scripture to become life in our hearts, Lord. Uh, we pray for the preacher that he may decrease and that, Lord, you may increase with that. Uh, we ask all this in the name of Jesus, for his sake we pray, amen.
Thank you, Mark. Uh, long, beautiful story. Um, if you've been here the past several weeks, you know we're continuing in our storyteller series. And uh, maybe the main way, the main theme, main way I could summarize this is that we're designed to be a part of God's story. He's not a two-bit actor in ours. <laughs> and how often we tend to think, feel, and act as if he's a walk-on in our story as opposed to us being brought into his. And this week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about kind of a weighty subject. Um, you know, the question of pain, the problem of pain, is one of the central questions uh, that humanity faces. It's one of the central questions that uh, come to every person that lives, um, and it's a central dilemma that every person finds themselves experiencing. For us as Christians, as disciples, as we think about this context, uh, it also is a central question of our faith uh, to understand uh, if there is suffering, why? Uh, and if God allows it, what's the purpose in that? I've chosen this story for a couple of reasons that we'll get into, but I want to say up front that any time that a pastor approaches such a vast subject like the issue of suffering, you almost feel ill-equipped to address it appropriately. So this morning's sermon is not a defense uh, on why suffering exists, but rather I want to ask a different question, particularly uh, from this story with this woman. I want us to consider a question that I think uh, will help every one of us in our relationship with God and see him in a new light. And that's that if God ordains that suffering is allowed in our life, that we are going to experience pain, is there any good purpose behind it? Is he doing anything good behind it? So th the main idea uh, that I want to consider with you is this, that as you and I trust God to direct the story of our lives, we see how he uses our hardest falls to bring about our greatest blessings. There's a thousand ways to observe that uh, from this story in all of scripture, but I'm gonna highlight three for us. This isn't a thousand point sermon, don't worry about that. But three different ways. Uh, first one, uh, that God uses pain to help us see that our need is much greater than we think it is. He uses pain and suffering in a way that we see that our, our truest needs are much greater than we could ever imagine they are. Uh, you know, this story is a great example how God orchestrates all things, particularly the troubles that we face in life, in a way that he wants to meet us there in the midst of that and to work in our lives in the midst of that. And, you know, thinking about this story specifically, it's a really, there's a lot of interesting dynamics in the way that John crafts this account. Uh, thinking about this woman as a Samaritan, Jesus as a Jew and a rabbi, uh, actually offers really helpful context. They were both overcoming quite a few obstacles to have this meeting at the well. Jesus was a Jewish man and a rabbi, uh, and this woman was a Samaritan. If you don't know like Bible history or the history of Israel, in essence, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms at its lowest point. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity and then the Jews that lived there were really intermingled and intermarried with people that were outside of the nation of Israel. That's a big thing in the Old Testament. One of the biggest byproducts of that is that they began to have their worship of God, how they understood God, warped into this type of worship that was really kind of all mixed up. That led to some interesting dynamics. The people in the southern kingdom would grow to view them with disdain. 
And uh, they really didn't have anything to do with each other. So at the point that Jesus is walking up to this well and meeting this woman, he's crossing all these racial and cultural boundaries to meet this woman who's really outside of the bubble, so to speak. Uh, He's also a man talking to a woman alone. And culturally, that'd be a big That'd be a big no-no in Jesus' day. It's something that uh, respected Jewish men uh, or rabbis were really told that they shouldn't be doing. So he's really bucking the boundaries in a lot of different ways. Thinking about this woman, and she's one of my favorite disciples in all of Scripture, uh, she was facing all types of external and internal obstacles to make this meeting with Jesus, even though she didn't even know it uh, before the meeting began. Uh, First, she was a Samaritan. That comes out in her exchange with Jesus. You notice she's like, what do you, why is it you talking to me at a well? I don't understand what's happening here. Uh, internally, this woman was facing all kinds of problems. You know, John really summarizes a long exchange here with a couple of cliff notes that are actually really important, uh, particularly when Jesus highlights her past history with relationships, how she's lived and where she's been, the things that she's been through. And internally for her, I think that created all kinds of obstacles for her to have an encounter with God. You know, one of the things that I love about the way that John wrote this account is the fact that he summarizes her past life so succinctly and so briefly. You know, in researching, uh, doing due diligence, writing this sermon, I cannot tell you how much ink is spilled and focused on the fact that this woman had things in her background that were immoral. And a lot of scholars will frame the entire interpretation of this passage in terms of its application strictly through that lens. And there's truth in that. I don't want to minimize that. That's absolutely true. But what I love about the way that John recorded it is that the specifics of her sin really aren't all that important. He really doesn't get into them. He doesn't focus on them too much. Uh, But for her, internally, think about it. A woman who had five marriages you know me you know i've been through a divorce there's a particular pain and brokenness that comes from going through a divorce she went through that five times uh she also was currently in a relationship that for whatever reason didn't seem like it was going to come to fruition in terms of it being a marriage that would honor god she also goes to the well in the heat of the day as the translation says. If you don't know what that means, it means that she was there probably somewhere around noon. Now living in the desert, what people would do is they would go to a well where they would get their water early, first thing in the morning, or they would go at the end of the day. That's when everybody would be there. But she goes in the middle of the day when nobody's there. Uh, This woman, in a way, organized her life to operate around the shame that she experienced for what she had gone through in her life, uh, the fear that she had about being judged by other people, and the need to not face that from other human beings. You know, one of the things that I've learned uh, in my own experiences with pain, uh, whether it's because of my own sins or just suffering in life, is one of the most insidious effects of suffering Uh, is the isolating effect that it has on a person. And, you know, that's both vertically, even though in essence that's not true. For us, we experience an absence of God when we experience great pain, and also horizontally in our relationships with other people. Um, 
what we can guess about her, not knowing all the details, what I'm willing to bet on is this, that this woman was living with a disappointment about her past relationships. That she didn't like it as much as anybody else did. Uh, that she was experiencing guilt over where she had found herself. The mistakes that she had, may have made and the results that she found in her relational life. And shame. This woman was going to the well in the middle of the day because she was living with a shame about what had happened to her and what she had been through. You know, there's a saying uh, in Christianity that the gospel is bad news before it's good news. You ever hear this? Gospel is bad news before it's good news. Don't lead a gospel sharing experience with an unbeliever with that, by the way. That's like, that's in-house talk. <laughs> Yo, bro, this is bad news. Uh, but it's true. There's a sense in which we need to know how serious our plight is, how serious our sin is before a holy God, and how helpless we are to do anything about it before we can truly begin to grasp how wonderful God's act of saving us despite that is. And you know, when we think about the subject of uh, pain and knowing that God is in control of everything in our life, uh, thinking about where God is in our pain can sound like bad news before it's good in the same way. But you know, the story shows us something about God and his character that's, that's super important for every one of us. And that's the reality that even when we are suffering greatly, God uses our troubles in a way that helps us grow. You know, Paul knew this so well. I, I read from uh, the tail end of Romans chapter eight and right before the section that I read for a gospel passage, uh, Paul records a statement that I have seen disturb and comfort more people uh, than almost any other part of scripture. In Romans eight twenty eight. He says that God works for the good of those who love him. God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I remember I had a conversation with a, a retired law enforcement officer. He had PTSD from his work because he had been in so many uh, traumatic incidences over the span of his career. And uh, we were talking about how difficult that was for him. And this is the verse that he quoted. He said, for years, this was the most disturbing verse in the Bible for me. That the things that I had been through and the way that I was affected, that God would actually say he was using those in a good way, that he uses all things. And he said, as God healed me and helped me grow in my faith, what I realized is that this was one of the sweetest promises that God could have ever given me. That he acknowledged the reality of my pain, how the things that I went through had affected me in my life, and that he promised to use even those things for my good and his glory. You know, God's promise to help you and I is guaranteed. If you remember at the beginning of this series, we talked about how we were created and that God created us for a covenantal relationship, uh, that there's conditions that we can't meet, that God sets and then meets for us. And that means that his grace and his mercy for us through Jesus is unconditional. His, his promise to help us is always guaranteed. But I find, especially when people are in pain, it's very difficult for us to believe and to surrender to it. And you know, that's true, whatever the cause of your pain is in life. Uh, if the cause of your pain is that you are continually struggling with sins that you haven't been willing to let go of, God's promise to help you is still true and at work. If it's a result of suffering, living in a, in a broken world, uh, that promise to help you is still true 
And that's particularly important to remember in the times when we just don't see how God is bringing his help to bear on our suffering. And you know, this is most important when God's help feels delayed. Uh, And in my experience, every person that I know that's walked with the Lord for any period of time has had that experience, the Job-like experience of getting to the point where you're suffering in pain for any of these reasons and you genuinely begin to wonder, where are you at? You know, as Herb talked about in our law passage this morning, it's such a great story about how the disciples unravel in their moment of terror and they genuinely wonder if God cares about what they're going through. But you know, if Paul uh, says anything in Romans 8, he highlights this, and that's that God works in our pain in a redemptive way. Uh, that's good for his glory, for his plan, but it's also good for you and I in a deeply personal way. One of the biggest ways that I think that that happens is that through that pressure cooker, when we experience pain and suffering, through that pressure cooker, God reminds you and I as his children that by our very design, we are meant to live out of a faith and a trust, to see that we have needs that only God can meet. And that he loves us so much that he won't allow us to spend our time trying to meet them from other things. Uh, to help us see that when we go to sin, we're going to, desire, we're going to broken things to fulfill desires that only God can fulfill. Uh, when we experience suffering, that we're experiencing pain that only God can sustain us through. And in the ways that he heals us, it's a healing that only God can bring to us. If you guys, uh, anybody that talks to me knows that I've taken up jujitsu this year, so let me say at the outset, I know nothing about jiu-jitsu, but there's a great analogy here that I've learned. Uh, I was training with my coach, who's been um, a professional fighter and a a jiu-jitsu coach for the better part of 20 years, and it was just three of us in class one morning. He had me with a guy who's north of 210 pounds. He'd also been training for 50 years, Uh, and just a an absolute monster of a guy. And so we got into the training session and uh, there was a point where I was completely exhausted. I was worn out. I was convinced I was gonna die. This man was gonna kill me in the next five minutes. And uh, I looked up at my coach and I was like, I'm gassed. And uh, you know, he didn't tell me that's okay, take a break. He said, keep going, keep going. And he started telling me what to do in that moment. He was giving me the technique corrections that I needed. And you know, it taught me such an important thing about practicing jujitsu. Afterwards, he shared with me, is like, you know, the reason why I had you do that for 45 minutes isn't because I don't like you. It's because you only really realize what you need to really rely on in jujitsu when you're exhausted, when you're completely worn out, when you can't use your athleticism or your raw talent or your raw skill. That's when you realize jujitsu is the art of practicing a technique It's a physical chess match with another person. And you know, that clicked for me because I realized, you know, the key is to learn to rely on the right thing in jujitsu. When God is working in your pain, one of the most important things that he's doing is he's teaching you to rely on the right thing in your suffering. And that's him. And he keeps you in the pressure cooker just until the moment when that clicks in your heart. Never a second longer even when that feels like it goes on forever. And I've had my own experiences with that. I know many of you have as well, but God keeps us in that moment just long enough 
to realize that we need to surrender to him and to rely on him first and foremost. That brings up the second way that we see this playing out. Uh, That's that God shows you and I that his help is better than we could ever imagine. C.S. Lewis, in one of his most famous uh, books, The Problem of Pain, wrote this, a very famous quote. He talks about the fact that human beings can learn to live with and ignore almost anything. You can ask Janie. She's shocked at the type of things that I just put up with all the time. Messy house, doesn't matter. I can tolerate any. I told her one time, you know, we were talking about relationship stress, and I said, well, I'm an Irish Catholic alcoholic. What that tells you is I could tolerate anything indefinitely unless somebody intervenes and helps me. Uh, But this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, uh, we can ignore almost anything. We can even ignore pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And you know, it's true. Whether you and I like it or not, uh, God uses the pressure of our difficulties to bring us to the point of surrendering to him uh, in our times of need. The middle section of this account where this woman is speaking with Jesus is such a beautiful exchange that the living God has with a needy and broken sinner. And you know, it's interesting if you notice the flow of it. It begins by them really talking about somebody just needing water and then wondering why this Jewish man is there. And then it gets a little more theological on her end where it seems like they're debating about what real worship is and where you should worship or who you should worship or what type of worship you should engage in. And then it ends with Jesus making one of the most beautiful declarations about himself in the Gospel of John. And it's interesting to note in this exchange when he says, I am he, uh, I who speak to you am he, meaning I am the Messiah, it's the first time that he says that to a human being before his trial. It's the first time that he says that to somebody point blank. Uh, when I think about the darkest periods of my life, when I've been in the most pain, what God has taught me is to keep my eye on him and where he's at and how he's operating in my life. And the reason why is because God knows that you and I struggle to see him clearly when we're in great pain. And so he orchestrates our journey with pain, the process of us going through suffering in such a way that we see in a transformative way that he is present with us. And also so that we see what he's really like. You know, there's nothing like prolonged suffering that will make you question God's nature and question God's love for you. There's just not. Uh, And God knows that, and so he orchestrates that journey for you and I in such a way that even in our darkest moments, he shows us what his character is really like. To see that he's there and present with us. Uh, And so that we see that in our moments of our greatest doubt, our greatest suffering, our greatest fear, our greatest shame, that God is not only present with us, but that he is working through the circumstances of our life, that his love and his power is with us, and that it's for us. You know, in that exchange that Jesus has with this woman, he gets to the point where he is correcting her theology in a way, in a loving way, and he says, look, uh, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. 
And you know, in a way, he's just correcting some misunderstanding that she has. He says, look, uh, worship isn't about this place. And he says, there's coming a time when people won't worship on a mountain. People won't worship in Jerusalem, but people will worship God in spirit and in truth. And he's helping her see that spirit, spiritual worship, genuine worship, isn't local, but it's spiritual in nature. Uh, and when he talks about worshiping in spirit, here's what he means. He's pointing out to her that people that genuinely worship God worship him with a right heart, meaning they have an intimacy with God. They know who he is, and they fall towards him in times of trouble. When he says that true worshipers will spirit in truth, he means that people have a growing understanding of who God is. Now, part of that happens through reading scripture, but you know, the way that God embeds, he works through his spirit to take the truth of scripture and transform us is through the word and the spirit and our experience in walking with him. And that's what this woman is beginning to realize in this moment where she encounters this man who's telling her that he is the Messiah. Uh, true worship is nothing less than this. It's the practice of learning to be in tune with God in all moments of life. In the best of moments, in the mundane moments, in the most excruciating of moments. Seeing how God is teaching you and I to be in tune with him and to learn how to depend upon him in our circumstances. And when you and I do that, when you and I are in tune with God in the midst of our pain, uh, here's one of the most humbling and unflattering things that every one of us finds. Uh, it's that God uses that process to peel away the layers of our self-sufficiency. And he helps us see how truly weak you and I are. Paul writes about his own suffering and him being in such pain that he prays to God and asks him, to remove his suffering, and he records God's response. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says uh, that God responds to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For you and I, it's in the moments of our greatest pain and weakness that we experience God's power and love towards us most intimately. That might be the most unappealing thing that you hear this morning, but you guys, there's no way around it. And God knows that. Furthermore, he doesn't just drop a bomb like that on you and then walk away. He stays with you in the middle of it. And he shows you how that's true for you in the way that he changes your heart, purifies your faith, and actually cares for you in your worst moments. One of the things that I found uh, drawing on the analogy of Herb's beautiful law passage uh, discussion is that for every one of us, God is going to lead us into storms. But what he shows us in the midst of those storms is that he is taking us to good places. And along the way, he shows us how he is with us in our pain and even working through our suffering to help us see what he's truly like and experience his love and his care uh, for you and I. If you guys know anything about me, I'm a fisherman and I go on a lot of long range fishing trips. So I've worked really hard to not use fishing analogies this summer. So just know that, but this one I couldn't get away from. Sometimes I go on long range trips, the three, five day trips where you go out on the ocean, you go to different parts. 
uh, different islands and you fish. And one year I was on a five-day fishing trip where we left out of San Diego and we traveled some miles off the Baja coast to an island uh, in northern Baja. That's about 285 miles south. At the end of our first travel day, uh, we were traveling along the coast offshore some ways. And uh, towards the end of the day, the captain suddenly took a hard turn and he started traveling towards the Baja coast, which wasn't in route to where we were going. And so after a few minutes, I walked up into the wheelhouse and I said, hey, what's going on? Do you see some fish out there? He's like, no, you know, uh, I saw something flashing about four miles away and it's been flashing for about 15 minutes. So I think we're going to go over and take a look and see what it is. And, uh, you know, it was towards the end of the day, and by the time we got over, what we saw was that it was a small boat called a ponga. It's a Mexican fishing boat. And uh, if you don't know anything about fishing vessels, this one's like a 20-foot fiberglass fishing boat that's a deep V-hole. So it rocks a lot on the ocean, and it's something that uh, fishing guides, captains, and professional fishermen will use in Baja uh, to take people fishing and to do commercial fishing with. And uh, this one was drifting off the coast, it turns out. When we pulled up, it was about 10 minutes before sunset. And when we pulled up, the captain, a guy who lived his whole life on the sea, and the two fishermen that he was with had a look of terror in their faces. And so we pulled up alongside them, we tied their boat along ours, and uh, we started talking to them. And the pongero, the captain, he started telling us that they went out fishing at dawn and that his motor had died. And they had been drifting from the coast out into the open sea for eight hours straight with no power, no life vests, no lights for anybody to see them after sunset fell. And that they, didn't, they were drifting literally into commercial travel lanes where these huge tankers go up and down the coast. And so they were on the verge of drifting into the darkness and they'd be out there drifting with no way to let anybody know that they were there through the night. Needless to say, we tied them up, we got them on board, and uh, these long-range boats are like, it's the way to fish. They are Cadillac living. Uh, it's not just a small fishing boat. They're like 115 feet long. You have your own staterooms like you're on a cruise. It's like old man fishing, which I'm all about. Uh, you go into the galley. It's not like a little dungeon. They have an executive chef who makes you like executive chef meals every day that you're fishing. And uh, so we got these three guys on board. They brought them into the galley, sat them down, made sure they were okay, started recording everything, told them to relax, got them blankets. Next thing you know, the captain's like, look, let's get you guys something to drink, some food. And executive chef comes in. He starts making them um, some drinks, started making them margaritas, got in the galley, started making them uh, steak dinner. I think he made them like filet mignon or something. These guys went from the verge of death to living the high life in 90 minutes. <laughs> When we pulled up, this captain was convinced he was a dead man, and he could have been. There's no way to know. 90 minutes later, these guys are in there drinking Dos Equis, like, this is it. God's help is better than you could ever imagine. Uh, you and I are going to have experiences in life where we are going to begin to feel like waiting on God in our pain is much more akin to him letting us drift alone in a sea of suffering. But here's the thing. God's process, even in the darkest of moments, is his way of helping you and I surrender into a deeper trust and faith that as bad as it might get for you and I, that God is still going to be with us and that he's going to do something good, even in our circumstances, even if they don't change the way that we hope they do.
And that surrender into deeper trust really isn't a surrender into darkness or endless suffering. It's a surrender into true healing and genuine freedom, the type of freedom that only comes in seeing that God does good things even in the worst parts of our life. That process of being liberated through that surrender does all all these wonderful things uh, for you and I. it liberates us from the shame that we live with if we've made mistakes. It liberates us from the fear that God's not for us. Uh, it liberates us from the worry about being judged by God when really some of our suffering is the result of our own sins because he meets us in the middle of that. And he gives us true life, as he said to the woman, living water. That brings me to the third thing that I want to think about with you for a minute or two. That's that God always turns our brokenness into something beautiful most broken parts of you, God is going to turn into something beautiful. A couple weeks ago I shared in my sermon uh, that all the major questions of life are answered by God in the cross, right? And that's true when we think about the question of uh, suffering, whether God does something good through our suffering, that's especially answered at the cross for you and I. God used Jesus' suffering to redeem all of creation and also to redeem you and I in a deeply personal way. And then he continues through his spirit to transform you and I in all the places where we are most broken, turning us into something that displays that same nature of God to the world. Sometimes scholars and pastors will write about this dynamic of spiritual life. They'll call it the cruciform life. And it's the idea that the life of Jesus in some way is a paradigm with which you and I are called to live. So our life is meant to be lived in the way of the cross. We are people who are to be redeemed in our suffering and our brokenness in a way that points them towards Jesus. And so we live out our lives as this living analogy of the cross and what God accomplished in the cross. Uh, one of my favorite testimony stories comes from this woman, if you notice that. Uh, when the disciples roll up, I didn't have uh, Mark read that part of us, but when the disciples roll up, she goes out and she bounces back into town. And I love the way that John just summarized her testimony story. Literally all he writes is she goes into town and she tells everybody, hey, I just met this guy. He told me everything I ever did. And I can't help but think, like when she rolled into a small town and said that, Everybody was like, sweetie, everybody around these parts knows what you've been doing. (laughs) But what's John summarizing for us? Uh, He's summarizing the fact that this woman went into town and said, look, I just met this guy. I think he's a prophet. He says he's the Messiah. I believe it. And you know what he told me? He told me everything I ever did. He knows how ashamed I am. He knows the mistakes I've made. He knows how I've suffered. He knows my pain. He found me out there by myself. He offered me true life. Uh, God takes you and I, and he takes the parts where we feel the most broken, most embarrassed, most ashamed about what we go through in this life, and he uses them in a way that we're able to share that freely with other people. Uh, This testimony is such a beautiful example of how God takes the things that we're most concerned about, most overwhelmed by, and transforms them into a source of strength 
uh, for you and I in our faith. When God brings uh, his power, the power of his love and his spirit into your suffering, he heals you in such a way that you're liberated uh, from all the things that overwhelm you when you feel like you're drowning in your pain. And in that process of being liberated, uh, God's resurrection life overflows out of us. You know, Rob talks about this a lot, that God will give us merciful doses of destruction, and through that process, he cultivates uh, this power and healness and holding that literally overflows out of us into the world. Now, I love the idea of that happening when I'm just destroying it for Jesus. Devotion, next level. Ministry, top notch. Sermons, flawless. You know, that's how I think, right? Where does God most powerfully do that in your life? Sometimes he does it through the quiet, faithful moments of learning to grow in grace. Many times, the most dazzling firework-type displays are when we are just falling in on ourselves. And God does something indescribably wonderful through that process uh, for you and I. Our faith in life, the best parts, the good parts, the most difficult parts, the most worrying parts of our faith and our life are meant to be lived in such a way that we show the world that God takes pain and suffering and he transforms it into something truly beautiful. Uh, I've always been fascinated uh, by this Japanese art. It's called the art of King Sugi. And it's the art of uh, repairing broken pottery. And I actually asked Jason to share a clip of an interview of a Japanese man who's been doing this for 45 years in Japan. So I want to watch that and then think about it for a moment with you. ま、私たち自身も壊れたり、欠けたり、それは日常のようにやってくることなんです。それを消して隠さない。不完全であるからこそ新しいものが生まれると思います。え、清川博人と申します。この世界に入って45年目を迎えます。金継ぎというのは漆を使って壊れたものを修理してそこに金で装飾をする。そういう技法のことを言います。
Uh, you know, there's a couple of comments in there that I just love. Also, side note, isn't it somehow cooler that this guy's like old school Japanese cat speaking Japanese and the music's in the background? <laughs> somehow I just love it a million times more because of that. But a couple of really uh, poignant comments that he makes during the interview. First, uh, he makes the comment that as human beings, we all develop scars in life, but that they should never be hidden. Uh, and when he talks about the fact that they use gold not to hide the imperfections, uh, but to highlight the brokenness, and in doing that, it becomes an important aspect of the object's history. Uh, later on in the interview, he makes uh, the comment to the interviewer, he says, you know, in my experience, what I find is that the things that people bring to me most often to be repaired are the things that are of the greatest value to them. I love that analogy uh, because it reflects God's heart towards you in your pain and your brokenness. Uh, that you have infinite value to God and even if he allows you to experience something that's painful and makes you feel like you're breaking, it's actually God's way of making you more precious and pure in his sight, even through the breaking. Um, God takes the broken part of your life, my life, and he makes an important part of our story. Um, your life is something that God has crafted and organized and orchestrates in a way that brings you to him and then sets you free to share about him to the world. Your salvation is deeply personal. It involves God's personal work of saving you, every part of you, and redeeming you the most broken parts of you, but your life as a gospel sharer is never meant to be private. It's just like this process. God takes you and I, all the broken parts of our lives, and he transforms them into something beautiful. And in doing that, we become these objects that have infinite value in God's eyes. And the broken pieces of our lives become sources of beauty and strength and display the beauty and strength and altogether loveliness of the God who takes broken things and makes something beautiful out of them. Pain can be overwhelming, but you guys, you don't want to miss out on that. When God brings you to the dark places, remember that he is there with you and he's doing something beautiful in you and through you for his glory and your good. Amen? Let's thank God for that. Father, uh, we thank you. Father, we just thank you. You are worthy of praise and gratitude and worship. And not just because of who you are, although that's enough, but because you are a God who does such wonderful things. That you're a God who takes great joy in coming near to us in our suffering and in our brokenness. And that you're so devoted to the redemption of your creation and to those of us who call you Father, that you took on human flesh and that you experienced all the pain that we do and all the suffering that we do and you experienced pain and suffering that we could never even imagine. And you did that to turn us from broken things into beautiful things, people who display your grace. Father, I pray that that would be the paradigm with which we view our lives and that we would always fall to you and surrender towards you into deeper wholeness and liberty and freedom. 
and see the beauty of your redemption at work in our lives. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.